want to invite you to open your Bibles, if you have one with you, to the end of Philippians. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there's some at the back to borrow. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one of those. That'd be our gift to you. We'd be happy for you to take it. Um, today we are coming to the, the very end of the letter of Philippians that we've been walking through for about six months now. So uh, if you're just joining us today, we'll try and get you up to speed as we conclude uh, this letter. This morning we'll be looking at chapter 4, verses 21 to 23. The construction of the iconic Brooklyn Bridge in New York City across the East River is one of the, the marvels of the industrial world. It was built, uh, construction began in 1869. It took 14 years to build. It was constructed uh, largely by hand. They didn't have the kind of machinery and equipment that we have today. And yet this bridge remains an engineering marvel. Uh, the bridge is over 1,800 meters in length. It would take you about 30 minutes to walk from one end to the other end if you weren't lollygagging. Um, it, its design required two huge, massive suspension towers that would, would rest uh, on the, the river floor and would, would stand 85 meters above the surface of the East River. Uh, each tower would then bear the weight of the, this massive bridge deck. Now, in order uh, to do that, the, the, tower, the towers needed to rest on, the, on the, something solid. And so the construction process involved uh, what are called caissons. I don't know if you've heard of them, and I'm a little intimidated speaking where there are some engineers, so maybe I'll be corrected by some things. But caissons, as I understand, were these large uh, wooden airtight boxes, basically without a bottom. They were, they were built and then they were brought out into the river and they were lowered down in place. Uh, they pumped compressed air into them to force all the water out of them. And then on top of them, they began to build these towers with massive quarried stones. There were, there were some, uh, not tunnels, there were, there were uh, I'm losing my language, but anyways, there, there were these giant tubes, if you will, that would lead workmen from the surface of the water down into these caissons whereby shovel, with shovels and wheelbarrows they would dig up the sand and the mud and that would be brought up uh, to the surface through these tunnels and discarded. And slowly as they dug, these caissons would sink lower and lower and lower. They, uh, they got quite deep, in fact. The, the, the final depth of one of them was 24 meters as they did this, they discovered uh, many workers got sick with what we now know as decompression sickness, working well underwater in this highly pressurized thing. In fact, 27 men died in the process of getting these caissons down. But, but eventually, as they continued to remove sand and mud, the caissons went down. They continued to pile stones on top until finally the caissons hit bedrock. The workmen crawled out of those passages for the final time, and they, the caissons were filled with concrete, anchoring those two towers to the bedrock under the East River, so that all that we see when we see pictures of this massive, iconic Brooklyn Bridge, all of the traffic, the pedestrians that travel over there, all of that can happen, all of that rests on the bedrock, where these towers are anchored to the ground. Getting down to bedrock was vital. Anchoring to something solid, reliable, was essential. 
This morning, we come to the closing verses of the letter to the Philippians. We've been walking through here for a while, as I noted. And here, this morning, we hit bedrock. Truths that are absolutely foundational for life in Christ. Truths that are absolutely essential for life. The life that every one of us was called to. For us, for all of us as human beings, the things that we encounter today, this this is bedrock. This is what we can build our lives on. Now, I do want to say this as a beginning. At this point in the letter, the Apostle Paul is wrapping things up. He's he's not presenting new information for us this morning, nor is he specifically highlighting the things that I'm going to highlight this morning. But the reality is the things that I'm going to speak about are absolutely implicit in the very language that Paul uses, they, they are assumed that they're foundational. And so we might be tempted to simply skip over these verses, see them as a mere formality, as unimportant. Paul's just writing or wrapping up the letter. Let's move on to something else. But, but as I reflected on this and prayed, I thought, no, no, there is something really important here. There, is, there, there are these bedrock truths that are implicit in Paul's language, even as he wraps up. And so it will, we would miss something beneficial if we didn't stop here to consider more, to reflect uh, carefully, to be reminded once again of, of what is bedrock for Christianity, what is bedrock for Christian discipleship, what is bedrock for, for life, the life that every one of us is called to. So this letter, for anyone who is just joining us today, this letter was written by the Apostle Paul, uh, to a church, first century church in the Roman colony of Philippi. Now, Paul had been earlier uh, a very zealous Jew. He had been uh, so zealous for God and for Judaism that he was a persecutor of the church. He, he breathed out murderous threats. We don't know that Paul actually got his hands dirty in the killing of Christians, but he certainly gave his approval to the killing of those who followed Jesus, who worshiped Jesus. Uh, Paul was zealously pursuing this when on the road to Damascus one day, he encountered the resurrected Jesus, called out to him, said, why, Paul, are you persecuting me? And, And Paul's life was transformed. He became, on that day, he became a disciple of Jesus. And not only a disciple of Jesus, but he poured out the rest of his life living as a missionary for Christ, a proclaimer of the good news that he had encountered in Jesus. That Paul writes this letter. Paul was on a missionary journey with some traveling companions, and he had a vision. We reviewed this. We can read the story of the founding of this church that he, he's writing to in, in Acts chapter 16. Paul has a vision of a man from Macedonia, from Europe, crying out, come over and help us. And so the next morning, Paul and his missionary companions get up, and they board a ship, and they cross the Aegean Sea, and they make their way uh, a little ways inland to the city of Philippi, this Roman colony. Now, Philippi was a unique uh, place. It had been gifted with Roman citizenship. The, the Roman military commander Octavian, after winning a great battle on the plains just outside of Philippi, gave this city, the citizens of it, uh, Roman citizenship, which was, which was amazing. And, and so it really, Philippi became this little place in, uh, of, of Rome, a little bit of Rome in the middle of the frontier, if you will. And so the people of Philippi were very, uh, very supportive of Rome, very pro-Rome. 
Now, Paul and his traveling companions arrived in Philippi. They went outside the city gates. Evidently, the Jewish population in that place was too small for there to be a synagogue. So they went outside the city gate on a Sabbath, uh, expecting to meet, uh, find a place of prayer, and they did. And they met some women, and, and Paul shared the good news about Jesus. And this woman, this businesswoman, Lydia, came to faith. She surrendered her life to Jesus and, and her household with her. And, and she implored Paul and his fellow missionary companions to come and stay in her house. And so that was the birth of this church. Now, 12 years later, the Apostle Paul finds himself in prison in Rome. And he is writing this letter to this church that he knows, that he loves, that he planted. He, he has recently received word about the church. In fact, uh, Philippi, the church in Philippi, had sent a gift with one of their own, a man named Epaphroditus, to support Paul. See, the, the Roman state didn't provide for the, the needs of prisoners. Those had to be met by others. And so Epaphroditus has bring, brought a financial gift to Paul. And along with that financial gift, he has brought news of the church. And there are two main things that are going on in this church. One, internally there is some relational tension. There is some discord. It's not full-blown conflict, but there's, there's something that's not good. Second, externally, there is opposition, there is persecution. The, the believers in Philippi are beginning to experience persecution because of their faith in Jesus. And so throughout the letter, those have been the things that Paul has been addressing. Uh, regarding their internal tension, he has been calling them to have the same mindset as Christ, to humble themselves, to, to consider the interests of others ahead of their own interests, that they would, they would take on the, the, the character of Jesus who left heaven and came to earth, became human, became a servant, a slave even, going to the cross uh, for others, for us. So they are to adopt the mindset of Jesus. And with regard to this external pressure, this persecution, this suffering, Paul is calling them to fix their eyes on Jesus, to, to run after Jesus, to pursue Him with all they've got because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, that they stand together, stand firmly for the gospel in Philippi. That's what Paul has been speaking about. Now the last two Sundays that we've been uh, walking towards the end here, Paul has been expressing his gratitude to these believers for their financial gift. But he has been very careful. If you've been with us, you know this. He's been very careful to, to communicate accurately that it's not the gift that he's, he's rejoicing about. He is so grateful and rejoicing because of the relationship of the Philippians, because they have renewed their love and their care for him. They've reached out. Not only that, but also their generous sacrificial giving is actually evidence of their spiritual health, of their spiritual progress, which thrills Paul. He knows these believers. He loves these believers, and he's delighted that they are loving him, that their relationship is good, and that this is evidence of their spiritual health and growth. And so he expresses gratitude to them for it. And now we come to the final three verses. If you have your Bible, I invite you to follow along as I read chapter 4, verses 21 to 23. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your, your spirit. Amen. As we walk through these final three verses, I, I want us to uh, focus our attention 
uh, closely on the language that Paul uses, on some of the words that Paul used. There's great significance there. And, and so to that end, I want to, together with you, ask four questions of this text. First, how does Paul address his readers? Second, where does Paul locate his readers? Third, how does Paul encourage his readers? And fourth, how does Paul leave his readers? So first, how does he address his readers? Second, where does he locate his readers? Third, how does he encourage them? Fourth, where does he leave them? So first, how does Paul address his readers? Uh, Paul's final greeting begins this way. This is how the text has been translated in the NIV. Greet all God's people. Now, if you were to look into the original language, you would note that the word used here by Paul, which is translated as God's people, is actually a Greek word uh, that means holy or saints. And it's singular, not plural. So although it essentially comes out the same, here's what he's Strictly speaking, Paul's not saying greet all the saints, plural. He's saying greet every saint. It gets to the same thing, but he's not saying this general thing. He's speaking to every individual saint, every single person that belongs to God. Now, that's what Paul is saying. Now, there are various reasons why uh, translations like the NIV have translated as they have as God's people. And primarily because for us as English readers, the term saint or holy ones uh, may be misleading. When we hear the word saint, often uh, that word has an elitist kind of sense to it. The way the church has through the centuries co-opted the term, if you will, to speak of special people. We speak of of St. Paul, St. Peter, St. John. So on the one hand, there's there's that danger that we hear saint and go, well, that's, that's them. Uh, on, on the other hand, we, we can hear the word and, and we can think about those who are particularly good, those who are really godly. You know, oh, my, my Aunt Ev, she's a real saint, right? We, we think of people who, who just exude that godliness. But either of those is to miss the point that Paul is making. Pa- Paul's not sending greetings just to special people. He's not sending greetings to those who are particularly good and godly. In fact, this term in the Old Testament, this language of being holy, it speaks, yes, it has that sense of moral purity, but it also speaks of being set apart for. That is, God's people in the Old Testament are called God's holy people, not because they are so godly in themselves, in fact, not at all, but because they have been set apart for God, for God's purpose. God's purpose is that they would grow in holiness, that they would reflect His holiness, but but their holiness is not dependent on them. And so that's the sense here. Paul is saying, greet each saint, greet each holy person, each person who belongs to God. That's the sense here. Not, Not just a greeting to those who are special, not just a greeting to those who are particularly good, but to all who belong to God. Greet all of God's people, each one, all who have been set apart for God's purposes, all who have been called to reflect God's character. That's how Paul addresses his readers. Greet every holy one. Greet every saint. Now, before we move on to the next question, I want to speak to something that is probably going on in some of our minds and hearts at this point. I can imagine that there would be many who would hear this and be tempted to feel, at least you hear the language, be tempted to feel disillusioned or even excluded. 
because you don't feel like a saint. You, you don't feel like a holy one. I mean, you, you, you know empirically from experience in your own life that you're not holy. You're acutely aware of your sinfulness, of your failures, of your inability to get things right. And so you hear this greeting to the holy ones, to the saints, and, and you go, well, that, that excludes me. And, and there can be this sense of exclusion and disillusionment. And that's true for people who are in the church. We, we often fail to believe the good news to really grasp the truth that we are going to get to yet this morning. And so we hear this and we feel a weight. But I want to speak to those here this morning or with us or online who are not yet followers of Jesus. You haven't put your faith in Jesus. Because for you, you, you have this sense that you don't measure up, that you, you aren't good enough for God. You aren't good enough to come to God. I'm not a saint. I'm not whole. I, I, you, you have this sense of great inadequacy. And now here, these words of Paul would, would seem to re, just reinforce that sense of unworthiness. Greet each saint. Greet each Holy One, each one belonging to God. Too often, we believe, both inside the church and outside the church, that salvation belongs to those who are good. Belongs to those who have it together. But that is not so. Thomas Merton said this, A saint is not someone who is good, but someone who experiences the goodness of God. I want you to hold on to that as we move deeper this morning. That quote provides us a good segue to our second question. Where, where does Paul locate his readers? The passage begins, greet all God's people, but that sentence doesn't end there. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. Paul locates those to whom he sends greetings, every holy one, every saint, as being in Christ Jesus. What, what does that mean? What does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? To be in Christ means to be in relationship with him. It means to be in union with Christ is one of the theological terms we, we use to speak of that relationship, being in fellowship with him. Apart from Jesus, there would be no saints. Apart from Jesus, there would be no holy ones. Greet all the holy ones in Christ Jesus. Uh, they are who they are. We, if we're in Christ, we, we are who we are because of our union with Jesus. Remember what Paul said earlier in this letter. He spoke of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. And then he said this. He went on and he spoke of being found in him. That is, being found in Christ. And not because of, here's what he wrote, not because of a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Here is the good news proclaimed in the pages of Scripture. That through faith in Jesus, in what Jesus accomplished on the cross, you and I can be accepted. That, that we can be made alive, that we can be forgiven, we can be declared holy, righteous. Through faith in Jesus, we're brought into this union with Jesus. We're brought into relationship with Jesus. The Spirit of Jesus fills us. Christ is in us. The hope of glory, Paul writes in Colossians. So this union, that, that we're in Christ through faith in Christ, through believing in what Christ accomplished on the cross, we're brought into fellowship with Him. The, the Bible teaches us that on the cross, 
where Jesus died, that Jesus bore the penalty for all my sin, for all the wrong I've ever done, for for all my rebellion, for all the ugly and shameful things I've ever done, for all the ugly and shameful things I will yet do. That out of love for me, God the Father sent His Son, Jesus. Jesus, out of love for me, willingly obeyed His Father, and He came and He became a man, and He lived a life of perfect obedience. And then He laid down His life for me and for you. He bore the penalty for my sin and rebellion and for yours. And and there's more. The Bible teaches not only that through faith in Jesus I am washed, I am cleansed, I am forgiven, but the Bible declares that through faith in Christ, it's not just that He washes the slate clean and I start fresh. He washes the slate clean and He credits me. He credits you through faith. He credits you with the perfect righteousness of Jesus, clothes us with it, so that you and I will not be judged on the basis of our performance for Jesus, but we will be judged on the basis of Jesus' performance for us. Isn't that glorious? That's the good news. Paul, again, in in verse 3, listen, chapter 3, this is what he said, and being found in him, that is being found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. We are clothed with his righteousness. We are clothed with his perfection. We are credited Christ's perfect obedience through faith in Him, forgiven, washed, and then credited with His perfection. And that's our standing before God in Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, Paul says this, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Does that mean Jesus actually became sin? No, Jesus is treated as you and I deserve to be treated. And we are treated the way Jesus deserved to be treated. This great exchange. He gets what we had coming. We get what He had coming. This marvelous exchange. There is no merit of our own, but but His mercy. Through His mercy, we have this restored... uh, We've been restored into a right relationship with God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit through, through Christ's death, His life, death, and resurrection. We, we receive His mercy. We are brought into union with Him. We are, we are redeemed, not because of what we've done, but because of what He's done. That is the good news. That is the gospel of grace. That through faith in Jesus, we're brought into that relationship. My favorite prayer, I think, in all of the Scriptures is found in Luke chapter 18. In Luke 18, Jesus tells this parable. It's a parable of uh, a Pharisee and a tax collector. Pharisees were very religious. They lived very upright lives. They followed all the rules. Tax collectors, on the other hand, were scum. They were hated by the Jews. They they were in bed with the the hated Romans. They stole. uh, They took more money than they were supposed to. They they enriched themselves at the expense of their fellow Jews in, in service to Romans. So tax collectors were scum. They were hated. They were wicked, greedy thieves. 
Jesus tells a story of a Pharisee and a tax collector who, who went to the temple to pray. And the, the Pharisee goes into the temple and he looks up and he says, God, I thank you that I am not like these other people, like this tax collector. And the tax collector doesn't even look up. The tax collector looks down and beats his chest. And he simply prays, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that parable concludes with these words, that's the man that went home justified. That's the one, the tax collector. He's the one that went home in a right relationship with, with God. He's the one that went home in Christ. Amazing. Amazing. In his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, Brennan Manning writes this, the good news means we can stop lying to ourselves. The sweet sound of amazing grace saves us from the necessity of self-deception. It keeps us from denying that though Christ was victorious, the battle with lust, greed, and pride still rages within us. As a sinner who has been redeemed, I can acknowledge that I am often unloving, irritable, angry, and resentful with those closest to me. When I go to church, I can leave my white hat at home and admit that I have failed. God not only loves me as I am, but also knows me as I am. Because of this, I don't need to apply spiritual cosmetics to make myself presentable to Him. I can accept ownership of my poverty and powerlessness and neediness. That is good news. That's, that's the good news of God's amazing grace. I want you to hear this. If you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus, I want you to hear this one thing. Christianity is not a self-improvement project. Christianity is not about cleaning yourselves up and making yourselves acceptable. It's about coming as you are and receiving the amazing grace of Jesus purchased for you at the cross. When we cry out like the tax collector, God have mercy on me, God makes us alive. He brings us into relationship with Jesus. We are found in Him. Jesus is, if you will, Jesus is the geography in which we live. We're found in Him because of His grace. Third, how does Paul encourage his readers? Not only does Paul extend greetings from himself to each believer, each saint, those with him, his immediate associates, send greetings. Verse 21, the brothers and sisters with me send greetings. And also the, the other saints in, in the church in Rome. Remember, Paul's in prison in Rome. There's a church in Rome. So he, he goes on, verse 22, all God's people here send you greetings. He is sending greetings from all the believers in his sphere. Remember what the Philippians are facing right now? Remember the external challenge they're facing is because they are suffering. They are opposed and facing persecution because of their loyalty to Jesus. They are in the Roman colony of Philippi, this colony that is very pro-Rome. They've received Roman citizenship. They are a little piece of Rome in the empire. And so at every civic gathering in, in that whole city, the ethos of Philippi would be to acclaim Caesar as Lord. That was the language. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. Every time they gathered for a civic event, Caesar is Lord. And now these 
Men and women have discovered that, no, Caesar isn't Lord. Jesus is Lord. And so they can no longer participate with their fellow citizens of Philippi. And because of that, they are facing opposition, persecution. Because of that, they are suffering. I don't know about you, but when I'm going through something difficult, it is so encouraging to know that others stand with me, others are praying with me. Others maybe know what I'm going through. They've gone through it themselves. And here, here Paul passes on greetings. I send greetings. Those with me send greetings. The, the church in Rome sends greetings. Surely this is intended to encourage these believers. Uh, you are not alone in this life of faith. You are, are not alone in this life of faith as you struggle, as you suffer, as you face opposition. They all, we all send greetings. But then we come to what is truly marvelous, a truly marvelous moment in this letter. Remember, Philippi is very pro-Rome. Suffering of these believers is because they refuse to acclaim Caesar's Lord. And, and into that context, Paul says this, all God's people here, that is all God's people in Rome, all God's people in the church in Rome, send you greetings, especially those who belong to, the, to Caesar's household. Especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The, the Philippians are suffering at the hands of Roman citizens loyal to Caesar. Paul himself is actually a prisoner of Caesar. But get this, in making him a prisoner at the very heart of the empire, they have brought the, the enemy in, into their very midst. A Christian, a saint, Paul, a missionary, one belonging to God, and by God's providence, he, his presence in Rome has borne remarkable fruit. There are now disciples of Jesus. There are men and women who are belong to the very household of Caesar who have bowed their knees to Jesus and who are disciples with the Philippians. New Testament scholar Gordon Fee writes this, Here is a word of encouragement to the Philippians. In the midst of their present struggle, the word of life to which they hold firm in the midst of their crooked and perverse generation has already penetrated the heart of the empire. What a word of encouragement. God has drawn members of Caesar's own household to faith. And, and, and Paul has been calling, challenging the Philippians to stand together, to stand firm for the gospel in Philippi, to shine like stars in the sky as they live among the, the lost people of Philippi. And, and here he's saying, look what God is doing in the very heart of the empire. Brothers and sisters who are part of Caesar's household are sending greetings too. They especially want you to know that they're here with you too. Paul concludes, fourth question, how does Paul leave his readers? Where does he leave them? He concludes with a grace benediction as he does in all his letters. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Paul opened his letter, this letter, with these words, grace to you and peace. That is, through the grace of Jesus we have Peace with God. And now he ends again on this word with this word of grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. It begins and it ends anchored to grace. This is bedrock. In his novel, Finding Home, it's been republished as Realms. One of our MB pastors from Calgary, Brad Hubert, shares a parable of Kingdom life. And I think it's a marvelous story, what he's done. It, it shows 
It shows the, the dead way of religion, of rule keeping, and the amazing way of kingdom life, understanding God's amazing, abundant, lavish grace. I want to read a portion of the story to you, just a page and a half or so, from a chapter appropriately entitled Grace. The main character of the story is a man named Ivan. He's been sucked out of his life in the suburbs and finds himself in this kind of medieval city called Basilea. He, he's met a number of friends, and one friend, Vita, is leading him somewhere as we pick up the story. Dropping his gaze, that is Ivan's gaze, he noticed that the ground had changed under his feet since he had last looked at it. The pavement was solid and liquid at the same time, fluttering and rippling as he tested it with his feet. Let me guess, the ground is alive too? Vita was already 30 paces ahead of him. The big man turned, feigning annoyance. We really do have somewhere to go. You could work a little harder at keeping up, but in answer to your question, no, the ground is not alive. Then what's it made of? Ivan squatted on his haunches to touch it with his fingers. It looks like pavement, but it's not, is it? The moment he made contact with the substance, shivers ran up and down his body and seemed to congregate in his heart. It was almost impossible not to smile at the sensation. It's pure grace, Ivan. Everywhere you go in Basilea, you're standing on the grace of the king. And you're smiling because of what grace is made of. Its essence causes joy. I'll say, Ivan's eyes brimmed with tears. It felt good to cry about something wonderful for a change. If you think that's amazing, wait until you see where we're going. Vita gently took hold of his arm and led him through the rest of the city to its very center, a grassy hill with a lone cross on top. Golgotha? Vita didn't have to answer. In fact, he couldn't answer. This was the place where the king had given his life to pay for the sins of the citizens of Basilea and Cacos alike. It filled Ivan with dread, wonder, and thankfulness all at once. May we go to the top, Ivan asked. May we? We must. I come back here as often as I can. Up they went. Each step seemed holy. Every moment seemed to grow weightier and mightier than the one before it. Ivan found himself looking down at the grass, which now looked more like a stream flowing down the hill than foliage. In fact, it was a stream. A fountain covering the entire hill, glazing it in the very same grace that had made up the pavement below. The stream was the grace that formed the foundation of the whole city. His eyes followed the water to its source, slowly scaling the hill until he saw the cross standing before him. He gasped in horror. The king was on it, bleeding and dying. Turning back to face Vito with fear, he noticed that his friend's face was wet with tears. With great effort and a trembling chin, Vita spoke. No, the king isn't on the cross right now, but his sacrifice is eternal, which means every time we come to the cross, his blood still flows as fresh as the day it was shed. In a sense, we must all come to him and look to him, look him in the eye at that place. Until we do that, we cannot know. Know what? You must take this journey by yourself. Ivan found himself trembling. The king was beaten badly and blood ran freely down his ragged flesh. Cruel spikes skewered his hands and feet, pinning him to the horrific wood, and he writhed in pain. Who did this to him? Anger smashed through Ivan's veins. I did, Vita said, sobbing loudly. Vita? The humble giant? But then another voice sounded, a voice so gentle it was powerful beyond words. You did too, Ivan. The voice of the king. And there was no arguing with the king. I did, he said, hating himself. 
Look at me. The king was speaking to him. The king he had been searching for. The king he had rejected in the old city. Trembling violently now. His eyes and nose flowing like the hills. Shame and guilt racked his body with physical pain. Ivan looked up. He met the king's gaze. Looked right into his eternal eyes. They were Genesis and they were Revelation. The sea and the stars, sunrise and sunset, beginning and end. They were soaring joy and crushing sadness, roaring thunder and gentle breeze, fire and snow, and they were love, pure, raging, unmaking, resurrecting, searing, scarring, dancing love for him. Ivan felt like he was being drawn into the king's very soul. His eyes spun out a magnificent whirlpool of spirit and life. Give me your list, King spoke again, but no longer from the cross. He now stood next to Ivan, hand outstretched. The cross stood bare before them, cold, rough, and crude. Ivan didn't understand. What list, my king? The one in your hand? The one in his hand? How could he have missed it earlier? The damning, endless list of do's and don'ts, the thickening list of his endless failures, the list of duties and laws and rules he could never keep, the death of his passion, that list. Give it to me, son. Ivan gave the king the thick stack of paper in slow motion, as if in a trance. An infernal weight lifted from his soul a moment later, and he wondered whether he weighed anything at all. The, the trance, but the trance was broken with a bang so loud that it rang in his ears. He nearly jumped out of his skin when he saw what the king was doing. Bang! He was nailing the accursed list to the cross. Bang! Pounding it with all his might, grunting with a fierce anger that nearly seemed unbecoming of the king. Bang! Almost. The last shriveled, the list shriveled right there on the cruel wood, flaking and rotting and flaming and shrinking, and then the crossbeam itself seemed to eat both the nail and then the list, sucking it right into the core. It was gone. The ghastly list was gone. I love Brad's imagery of grace flowing everywhere in the city. In Christ, we stand in His grace. That it is about His amazing grace that He has paid the whole debt. And He simply invites us to come to Him, to receive from Him. That's the note that Paul sounds to conclude this letter. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Be with each one of you. I began this morning speaking about the Brooklyn Bridge and the caissons beneath the towers that were dug down until they finally hit bedrock to provide a foundation. Here in these closing words of this letter to this church, Paul, his words, they, they, they just drip with the gospel. He concludes on this note of grace. He speaks to those who are God's people because they are in Christ, because of what Christ has done, because of His amazing grace. And, and that is what I want each of you to take away this morning. For those of you who are in Christ, that you would today afresh know and believe the good news that you are loved 
not on the basis of what you do. You are accepted not based on your performance, but, but on Christ's performance because you are in him. You have declared that he is your only hope and you stand in a river that rages with grace. And for any who are with us who have never put your faith in Jesus, maybe you, you think, oh, I don't measure up. I can never do that. I want you to hear, I want you to know that God's love for you is not based on your performance, on your goodness, on your ability. It is, it is based on His amazing grace, His desire for you to know Him, to know His love, to receive His grace. This is bedrock. This is, this is something solid you can build your life on. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for your amazing grace. Jesus, you are our only hope. And because of you, we have hope. And because of that, we have joy. Oh, Lord Jesus, work in us. Remind us of this foundational bedrock truth daily, moment by moment. And by it, we pray that you would transform us for your purposes and for our joy. Amen.